Hey, Lily, can I share a fantasy with you? Um, Randy, where exactly are you trying to take this relationship? I mean, I like you as a co-host, but, you know... No, not that kind of fantasy. We've managed to keep the podcast clean so far. But, you know, sometimes I dream about starting my own company. Do you ever do that? Oh, well, I think we all have that one. But until someone wants to throw a lot of money behind it, we'll probably have to wait. Yeah, I hear you on that. But, you know, some people don't wait for the money. They just get started. And today we're going to talk to Matt Clayton, the founder and CTO at Mixcloud. Oh, yes. They're the ones that bootstrap their way for eight years or so, competing with Pandora, Deezer, Spotify, Apple. And didn't they just raise their first round of funding? Yeah, that's right. Matt's going to tell us all about why they finally did so, all the lessons they've learned along the way, and why they're now hiring some more product people. And, you know, if you want a job with them, you should probably listen to the end of this episode or at the very least, read the show notes. Definitely. Now let's get to it. The product experience is part of the Mind the Product Network. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we improve our practice. Aside from conferences in London, San Francisco, Singapore, Hamburg, and Manchester, there's also free product tanks in more than 185 cities, and there's probably one near you. Find out about them on mindtheproduct.com, where you can also catch up on past episodes, videos from the conferences, read great articles, and learn about the training that we do. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. For anyone who doesn't know who you are or what Mixcloud is, do you mind giving us just a quick intro? Yeah, so um, my name is Matt Clayton. I'm one of the co-founders of Mixcloud, where I'm on the product and engineering orgs. Um, Mixcloud, for those of you that don't know, is an online audio hosting platform. We essentially specialize in long-form audio. So it's a UGC platform where people come along and upload one hour typically radio shows or mixers, and then other people come along and listen to them. Um, we've been going for quite a while now, about 10 years, and yeah, it's been a hell of a ride. Excellent. And I love the story of how you guys all started Mixcloud, but the reason we got you on today was to talk actually about that origin and how you got to where you are. You've gotten to a really good size, and you've only recently taken your first round of funding, so you were bootstrapped for quite a long time. And I heard you give a really good talk about this at Business of Software. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the founding and the start of the journey? Yeah, so it's it's kind of a unique experience, to be honest, um, particularly within music. Um, so we've grown, we've grown over the last 10 years, basically organically. And now, uh, well, we're over 10 million monthly active users considerably at this point. And we basically bootstrapped to that point. So the start, actually, to be honest, and when I say the start, I mean, the first probably five years were just a lot of hard work, a lot of grinding it out and sort of just doing the hard parts of starting a business. But kind of one of the unique things to our story is there's there's four of us originally, so me, myself, um, Nickel Shah, Sam Cook, and Nico Perez. And two of the guys, so Nico and Nickel, were full-time when I joined full-time. Basically, built we built the first version for the first, I think, three years or two and a bit years out of a warehouse in Southampton. and by warehouse, I mean a 65,000-square-foot warehouse, which is now an Amazon distribution center, I believe, to give you <laughs> some sense of scale. This is the kind of thing where you could legitimately set up a go-kart racing track, a table tennis, not table tennis, <laughs> I mean a full-size tennis court, and not have room to do whatever else you wanted. 
Um, and yeah, so we got going there um, with no internet as well. Surprisingly, we had those three G dongles back in the day with sort of a one gig limit on them. And that, that's interesting when you build a music streaming service because you can't actually test your product properly because you can't listen to music. Um, so yeah, it was an interesting ride the first few years. So where where would you go to listen and test? Starbucks, basically, quite simply. <laughs> um, Starbucks or any other open coffee shop. Um, the other favorite was the Apple Store, to be quite honest. They were in, in the center of London. Um, we just go into the Apple Store and start asking people to test the product. Because where else? I mean, what do you want for um, a user testing session? You basically need a lot of computers connected to a good internet connection, uh, particularly when it was focusing on desktop, not mobile at the time. But I believe Apple's caught up with that trend. So you could probably go there and ask them to test the app as well. <laughs> Are you all from like product backgrounds or did you kind of just intuitively know? Um, no, like, um, like just give you the back, the backstory there. We all went to uni together, although um, I only really got to know the guys after uni, but those three were very good friends at uni. Um, Nico and um, myself did engineering. Nickel and Sam did maths at Cambridge, all four of us. Um, so it's about as far from your typical product background as you can imagine. I don't think any of us have worked in product before. So did you all just intuitively know how to build products or were you learning a lot along the way? I think still learning is probably the honest answer there. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the way, the way it started originally is essentially you've got the f- four people and sort of three of us full time at this point. So Nickel took on the commercial side because you know, it, we kind of had the commercial guy, the design guy, and then the engineer guy is kind of um, well, two, two in that case. So me and Sam did the engineering or the coding. Nico did the design and Nickel did everything else. And honestly, we didn't really think about product as a function for a long, long, long time. I'd say until about two years ago. So for about eight years, we didn't really isolate it out as a function. We only hired our first PM two years ago. And what made you decide to do that? Why was it the right time? To hire a PM? Yeah. Um, honestly, we were just looking at how to scale out the company and how to scale out the individuals involved. And it's like, well, this bit we can carve off. We're here having a product function is a good idea. So we, we went down that route. Um, a lot of it in the early days, because it was such a small team, because of the, the nature of being bootstrapped, you have no capital, therefore usually your staff count is the thing which suffers. Um, you just, everybody runs multiple jobs, multiple hats. Um, people just have that attitude of getting and get on with it. Like just figure it out. Um, we very much optimize for hiring super bright people who are super young and enthusiastic, mainly because we just honestly didn't have the money to pay them, um, what they get elsewhere. So we just found those people who were hungry and lent into that. Um, which meant that everyone was doing product per se. And lots of people used mm-hmm. the product that stage, like I would say 24 hours a day, but it was certainly 16 hours a day. Um, so they got to know the problem space pretty well. So you were in a, in music, it's a market that can take a lot of money to succeed just the way you deal with labels and rights organizations and things like that. Um, yep. It seems like it would be a natural to try and take funding the way that so many of the other players in the space have. What made you guys decide that bootstrapping was the right way to go? I think that's probably the wrong way to look at it. Um, we, I mean, we tried to raise <laughs> funding. Like we, we tried multiple times. We failed. Like I, I, 
I could probably walk into most, or between the three of us, Munich and Nickel, we could probably walk into every single VC in London and they will know our name and face and they'll know what we do. And like, if you, you're right, it costs a lot of money. I mean, look at every player in the space. So you've got the big tech giants, you've got Amazon, you've got Spotify, you've got Apple, um, just to name a couple of them. You've got SoundCloud, like Deezer, every single one of these is done multiple hundreds of millions in funding or billions invested in their music areas. So for example, like Amazon, Apple, do you really think they'd notice if they shut down music and yet they've spent billions in this area? Um, it's insane. So we tried to raise capital and at the time, no VCs would really bet in it. Um, the US thought it was crazy to invest in music. Um, it was just the general tone we got from every VC we saw in the US, particularly the West and the East Coasts. Um, Europe was um, was succeeding in music, actually. I find it really interesting looking back that most of the, the recent music tech companies have come out of Europe. Um, and I think that's because some VCs here were investing in them, whereas in the US they weren't. Mm-hmm. I mean, really the big player in the US is Pandora. Uh, but if you look at Europe, you've got SoundCloud, you've got Deezer, you've got Spotify, and then you've got others coming out of the podcasting space as well, left, right, and center now. But yeah, we, we went and talked to everyone and they just said no, to be quite honest. They didn't think the market was big enough for the type of content we were dealing with. And I think we missold the vision and we focused too much on dance music and um, EDM as opposed to talk and podcasting and some of the bigger long-form audio areas. And there's been a massive growth in in podcasts and, and podcast content. Did you see that coming and kind of ride that wave or was it a surprise when it happened? Um, a bit of, a bit of both and a bit of neither. Um, yeah, I mean, it's growing tremendously, but the market really hasn't unlocked properly yet. Um, we think there's another, I don't know, 10, a hundred X growth to come out of it. Um, we're seeing the user numbers look great. We're seeing the revenue not look so good right now. It's all the advertising models are broken in that area. Um, we, we're not really riding that wave though. Um, when you look at the platform, we're more about the music content as in DJ mixers, radio shows than we are about podcasts and talk shows such as this one. So I would say we've not transitioned over into that area yet, but we have a lot of very unique feature sets and, and like propositions to come into that market with. And at some point I think you'll see us enter it. If you haven't had that additional sort of um, the comfort of additional investment, how has that changed the way that you've worked on your product? I'm, I'm guessing that you're very, very focused on building a sustainable business model or has it, have you been very focused on growth and then thinking about monetizing later? How has that worked for you guys? So the way we think about it is there's essentially three pillars to any music company. Um, there's growth, there's licensing and there's revenue. And most companies don't have that triad, but in, in our case, there definitely is. Um, as in most companies outside of music, you need to kind of build all three, three things in parallel. Otherwise, if you lose any one of those pillars, the, the business is in trouble. Um, and if you look at something like a traditional business um, outside of any licensed content, they've often got two pillars like growth and revenue. Um, and if you miss one of them, the other one falls apart, essentially. If, sorry, if you only have one of them, the business falls apart um, eventually. You can prop up the revenue one with venture capital or private equity, et cetera. Um, so for us, we were very much thinking not in terms of which one do we do now, but how do we do all three? So we, if you look at the history of the business, we definitely 
transitioned from revenue then into growth then into licensing we kind of danced around all three almost monthly or quarterly we were shifting focus um or trying to do all three simultaneously which is just very hard um but it's the only way to build it to to be long-term and sustainable if you focus on growth and prop yourself up um, revenue wise with regards to VC funding and don't deal with licensing, that'll eventually come back and bite you. Or if you deal with licensing but have no users or no revenue, you can't pay those bills. Um, or alternatively, if you get the, um, you get the, well, it's an age old thing. If you raise VC capital and have no growth and no revenue, then you're also screwed as well. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of been this balance of all three. Um, and it's something we've tried to kind of keep at the core and center of what we believe in. Um, when we did raise this round of funding, uh, nearly, well, it was actually last January, so it's been a while now. So what made you decide now was the right time? Was it just the, the availability, or are, were you in a position where you still were desperately looking for it as a, something to unlock the next phase? Um, it's, it's actually a myriad of reasons. Um, one is I think we were hitting the ceiling with what we could do with the team size. Um, secondly, I think mainly... Look at the, look at the audio space. Like there's certain things which are now table stakes with regards to being a competitor in this area, and one of them is offline playback. One of them is subscription models. Um, but if you look at the licensing um, licensing um, landscape, to get those feature sets which the products are desperately needed, you need to do a different type of licensing deal. You essentially need to do deals with the directly with the major. Um, music companies so to do that that just requires a substantial uplift in capital um, one which we couldn't generate through revenues immediately and also once you're raising capital to sort of buy those licenses etc you may as well raise more capital to staff it yourself properly to execute against those licenses it's a little bit of a step function where you you need the product feature set to do that you therefore need the licenses to do that you need x amount of capital by the time you've got x you may as well do three four x and execute as well as you can against it rather than having a minimal attempt at it and jeopardizing um essentially the company because of the increase in burn due to the licensing requirements makes sense how, how has it changed things for you having access to that capital there's a lot more people than there used to be. Um, <laughs> so I think we were 15 or 18 before and we're now mid fifties, I'd say, or early fifties in terms of headcount. Um, that just brings a whole host of um, different issues and different opportunities. Um, just more people, I guess there's more people, more problems, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. It's just different problems. Um, there's a lot more of a management layer. Um, it's how do you scale a product team from eight people who is like, it's not quite a pizza team, but it's, it's a big pizza team, um, into different groups who have different skill sets, people who can't necessarily go all over the product. They've got a vertical or, um, how do you deal with the communication issues there because of the, the extra people, also the extra responsibility, the extra, um, accountability as well as actually that's that's good um, that helps you focus and sort of draw in uh, certainly has for us anyway and how has it been for you um working on the product sort of very i guess very kind of tactically and then having that product team grow and having to let go maybe of some of the the decision making and the the kind of day-to-day -day running of the product 
Um, it, it's difficult. Um, it's often, it's, it's the thing I struggle with the most, actually. I'm, oft, I'm still day-to-day involved in the product. Um, I will be coding later today on a specific problem we have. Um, it's, I think because we grew so rapidly over the last year, it's like two to three X on my team. Mm. And when you look at it, there's like two, three, four people who've got five, six, seven, eight, ten years involvement in the product. Actually, those people are the ones who know where the skeletons are, know where the bodies are buried and know how to get around them. And unfortunately, given that I've been here for over a decade at this point, a lot of those, I know where a lot of those skeletons are. So I often end up helping the team out, just avoiding them or, you know, making sure that we, particularly on the engineering side, code around something or just understanding the consequences of those actions on the product side because we've been here, we've tried it before, we we know why it didn't work the first time. It doesn't mean we can't do it the second time because, honestly, we have a better team than we ever had before. Um, But it's just the lessons of history. So I would say that's the hardest thing for me is seeing things repeat and feeling a little bit like do I let people repeat the same mistakes I made but actually they're better at it so they might just make their way through and succeed where we failed previously um, and just understanding when it's right to advise but let them there was a really interesting quote from your talk which is um it was until you've experienced a truly high performing team your highest peak is the best you can imagine so how did you come to that kind of that conclusion <laughs> i actually can't remember saying that quote but it does sound like something I <laughs> it does sound like something i believe as well um so <laughs> yeah um what we what we often see is like i heard this explained many years ago um by somebody who was working on facebook in the early days that you kind of climb up this mountain you get to the top and then when you're at the top of the mountain, you can kind of see the next mountain. And it's like, damn it, we're now at the top. So to get to the next one, you have to reverse and undo and climb down the mountain. A lot of stuff you've already done and then go for the bigger one and climb up it. Or do you just get, do you just give up and stay where you are knowing full well there's a bigger opportunity out there? And I think that kind of mirrors into what I was talking about here, which is, um, you know, when the team is operating well, but when the team is operating badly, it's very hard when you're in that moment in with them to realize that things are dysfunctional um until you get it back to when it when it's running well again and then you're like oh i remember this this is easy everything's just fluid things just happen before you think about them and everybody's just on beat essentially um but when it's off beat it's very hard to realize it because everyone's just so focused on the essentially the outcomes they're trying to drive and therefore are pushing towards them without really looking back at themselves and figuring out, okay, what missteps did we make here? Like, how do we improve it? Um, when you drive people or when people are that driven, it's very hard to understand what is a process or dynamic problem in between everyone or what is, and or whether things are just high performing or not. Certainly that's my experience of it. So that's a very rambling answer, but um, <laughs> it's hard to, <laughs> to grasp. So Matt, you've also been really frank about uh, some of the mistakes that you've made, and I'd love to to come back to one or two that you've learned from, but there are also things you've talked about that are things that look like mistakes from the outside, but you'd absolutely do them again because they turned out to be the right decision. Do you want to, is there something that you can give us as uh, an example of that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's the thing which every time I go and talk at any uh, engineering or tech conference, people look at me like I'm from the 70s or the 80s and crazy. Um, so despite what we say in our name, like Mixcloud, we, we basically use no infrastructure in the cloud. We run pretty much everything apart from backup systems in a data center based out of London, which, as I say it now, will be ultimately the thing which will probably not get me a job as a CTO at any other company. But... For us, when you run the numbers, it makes complete sense. Like, um, we store multiple petabytes of data doing, well, I can't really go through the numbers in terms of bandwidth, but petabytes of bandwidth. And if you look at the billing on something like AWS or Google Cloud and compare, or Azure, any of these providers, and then compare it to what you can do direct deals or running your own sensors, there's a 10x difference. It's astronomical. Um, and certainly that's even with like direct pricing that's with like Google and Amazon in both cases doing the best they can to reduce the pricing um, I wouldn't I don't think I would ever certainly doing the platform we do here where we deal with um, storage plus bandwidth combined look again at using the cloud uh, we, we run those numbers every six months and every six months we sit back and go yep right call let's carry on um, so I think that's probably the most controversial decision I've made over the years, which honestly I stand by. Um, and I, I, I still struggle to find anybody else in this, in this industry who would believe me on that until they <laughs> run the numbers. <laughs> and then they run the numbers and are quite, quite honestly astounded by how little we pay for hosting compared to anybody else we, we work with. So one of the things that I've found with businesses that don't take investment is that you don't have that kind of um, the founding team being held accountable to investors. How have you kind of found that within your own team? And have you had to kind of compensate for that in any way? I don't know. It's an interesting question. It's something we've debated a lot because I think... I've probably got quite a unique perspective on this, having bootstrapped a company for 10 years or nearly 10 years and then transitioned it into um, a funded company. Um, the traditional answer to this question would be that the accountability steps up when you have investors. But actually, I think for us, it it just transitioned. It didn't really step up versus down. It just moved from to a level of focus. Um, the reality is that though, if you, you're bootstrapping, you have 15 to 16 staff, as we did towards the end of that sort of era of the company, you have a level of accountability, which is honestly paying their wage bill. Um, and yeah. that weighs on your mind. And without, without funding behind you, if you have a wage bill of 15 people, you have to find that money every single month. And there's very little room for error or maneuverability there because you don't have the cushion of capital to back you up if you make a mistake. So I wouldn't say that it's the accountability is there with the investors. I would say it's also there with staff count um, because ultimately mm-hmm. as the executive company, you're sort of there to serve them as well as the shareholders. So you're, you're basically going from one stakeholder, which is, you're there to help your staff and they're here to help you as well. I'm not saying it's in any way a, a single direction path, but also when you bring in the investors, you've just got another angle as well to it. So for me, I think the accountability very much transitioned um, rather than wasn't there to begin with. Matt, you talked about uh, in terms of the way you and Mixcloud build your roadmap, you say that you build it backwards. What do you mean by that? 
Yeah, I think this is sort of how I think about it rather than how we build it. Um, we kind of have, we've gone through so many different approaches to this over the years. I really don't think we have it nailed at this point. Um, it's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about is how we, how we do that. It's very clear in the execs team where we want to be. And then the question is filling out that, that gap from where we want to be in a year or two years' time to where we are today. And somebody about two years ago, or a year and a bit ago, actually, an um, exec coach told me about this idea of um, essentially, I can't remember the name he gave it, which is bugging me at this point, so maybe I'll come back to that if I remember it. But essentially, you start with where you want to be in a year's time. You basically work out what do you have to do to get there? Like what's the one step before that? So if you want to be somewhere in a year's time, you look at where do you have to be in 10 months to be able to get there in a year? Then you look at where you want to be in eight months, so to be where you need to be in 10 months, to be where you need to be in 12 months. And you go backwards and you reverse out the whole process from your destination all the way back to today. And what, what you usually figure out is, oh, damn, there's no time to mess around. Let's get started. Um, in fact, I can't think of a time when we haven't thought that and realized that actually we need to get going six months ago, not today, because it's just unrealistic to get there with our current pace in 12 months. So that for us is kind of it's gone into how I think about the roadmap. It's like start actually a couple of years out and then work backwards. And honestly, it's very vague a few years out. And as you work backwards, it gets more and more crystalline uh, and more specific. Um, it's something which I go through in my head a lot, but I'm not sure I've got it to the point where I can crystallize it externally clearly and coherently at this point. Um, but it, it is internally how I think some of the other execs as well. Is that exercise what you're doing with it? Is it that you're learning what is the actual priorities and what doesn't matter so you're able to to prioritize the right stuff? Or are you also sometimes learning that where you want to be in a year or two may or may not be realistic and you need to change the the actual objective? Well, it's kind of a combination of both, and this is, I think, where the stressors come in. So if you start... I mean, infamously, particularly engineers, um, massively underestimate um, what they can achieve in 10 years. They, By an order of magnitude, they can achieve way more than they ever think in 10 years, but massively um, overestimate what they can achieve in a month or week. They always think they can get it done in a week and it takes six months, but then put a 10-year horizon on them and they go the other way. And I think it kind of cascades into product as well, where... Um, you as a company hugely underestimate what you can do in 10 years. Um, I, I think it's just human beings, to be honest. But as um, you overestimate what you'll achieve in a month, so it kind of helps to deal with that paradigm. Um, I mean, look, some of the biggest companies in the world were built in less than 10 years. Um, you look at something like SpaceX and see what they've achieved in 10 years, and it kind of puts into comparison what others could achieve. <laughs> they're, they're literally a space company. Um and Microsoft and Apple and a lot of these companies got from zero to something insanely large in 10 years. So it's how do you distill that back? So I think two years, it's not that it can't be achieved. It more focuses you on what are the core building blocks you absolutely have to achieve to get there. Maybe it's more funding. Maybe it's more people. Maybe it's just like we need to win this market first before we win that market. Maybe it's we have to defensively um, – hold this position or like solidify things to make sure the revenue stream is solid before we move on and grow into a different area. Maybe it's just feature sets. Um, seen this time and time again in products where 
feature sets have to sort of tee up and line up over several months or several years to get to the end vision um, before the whole thing makes sense. Um, we're actually going through it right now. We're looking at how do we do a rebrand, and um, that's a massive exercise, and the team is executing phenomenally well on it. But you'll see over the next couple of months that it just the site in certain areas won't make sense until the complete picture is there. And they basically started at the end goal, which was six months out or a year in this case, and um, worked backwards and said, okay, to hit that date, go back two months, we need to be here by this point. To get here, we need to be here by this previous point. And they've worked it all backwards from that launch date. Um, and then, yeah, time and time again, that's the way I see it unfold. And you mentioned before that you've had, you know, in this market, there's some tough competition with businesses investing very heavily. So what do you think has enabled Mixcloud to succeed? To be quite honest, it's um, it's a little bit been a war of attrition, right? We've just never given up. Um, <laughs> like, everybody else I talk to has um, folded, gone head to head with one of the big guys. We've kind of managed to stay nimble, stay out of the way, and it's by the nature of the content. So our creators are our largest and biggest asset, and we're sort of grateful for every day um, they use the platform. They produce con- content by orders of magnitude we never even imagined possible and people come for them and we have a creator base which is unique differentiated uh, we actually did some analysis re- recently and we figured out 90 percent of our content is nowhere else on the internet we just can't find it um so that was a lot of interns looking for it trying to find it and um that kind of just proves that differentiating the content even a little bit and getting Basically, high-quality, unique content is defensible. You can't buy that off three or four providers, um, which, as I say, is what most of the um, large music platforms have done. They've bought their catalogs essentially off three or four major labels and and the wider industry as a whole. But for us, it's it's more organic. It's essentially millions of individual creators who form this unique catalog and therefore give us defensibility and the ability to grow as well. And with the uniqueness of bootstrapping, does, does that mean that you've had to... um, a bit of both there's certain times when we have moved substantially faster because there's less people um, you just don't need to coordinate as many people therefore you can kind of get consensus quickly and just move efficiently and that's one of the things we're struggling with as the team's grown is like we've lost that but with more people, you can achieve more things because you've just got more bodies to type on keyboards fundamentally. Like engineers are the people who deliver things to users. And pretty much every other function helps support that, whether it's be de- design, making sure it looks right the first time, product, making sure they design the right thing, legal, making sure you don't get in trouble, and then commercial sort of keeps the, the boat afloat. But fundamentally, the engineers get stuff into the user's hands. So having more engineers or and more support resources as an organization together allows you to move faster uh, but you need to get that well coordinated that's something we're working a lot on right now and sometimes it goes well and sometimes it goes badly do you have any um top tips for other businesses that are bootstrapping keep going it's going to get hard and it's going to get easier as time goes on but it's a roller coaster um i talk to a lot of founders who are bootstrapping right now and 
there are good days and there are bad days. There's big swings, positive and negative. Um, every time I talk to somebody who fundraised a company and exited it, they'd bootstrap it the next time. Everyone I talked to a company who bootstrapped, a founder who bootstrapped a company, they'd fundraise the next time. So <laughs> it's crazy. There is no fixed way of succeeding or failing in this industry. The grass is always greener. <laughs> So, Matt, I know you, uh, with the additional investment, you said you've been growing and you're looking at the, the size of the teams. Is that something that you're looking at in the product space now for people listening who are intrigued by this and want to get involved? Is, is this a good time to get in touch and what should they do if so? I don't think there's ever been a better time to get in touch. Um, currently hiring for two senior people on product, one um, a senior product manager, uh, another one essentially product leadership. Um, so right at the top of the game within the company to come work directly with myself and start splitting off some of that function from myself as we, we scale to the next couple of years and beyond. Um, so yeah, we're actively hiring for at least two roles in product, if not more throughout the next year. Um, and yeah, get in touch if you're interested. How should people do that? What's the, the best way? Um, mixcloud.com slash jobs um, or if people ever want to get in contact with me directly matt at mixcloud.com although I would encourage to go through the official channels because they manage that process way better than I do by my inbox Matt it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast thank you so much for joining us thanks for having me it's been delightful So Lily, are you now tempted to start your own thing? Well, I'm always tempted, but does it mean that we and our families would have to move into a warehouse together? Um, maybe not right now. <laughs> yeah, that's not exactly where I was going with that, but yeah, agreed. And what a story Matt told. And if you want to hear more great stories from product people, make sure you subscribe to the product experience in your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating while you're at it. Thanks for listening. The Product Experience is part of the Mind the Product Network. Our hosts are me, that's Lily Smith, and Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Emily is ours alone, but we're happy to share Luke if you need someone to edit your own podcast. Hey, you can't share him too much. He's my husband. <laughs> <laughs> Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg and plays bass in the band for letting us use the music. And sign up for your local Product Tank, a regular meetup in over 185 cities worldwide. There's probably one somewhere near you. And if there's not, you can start one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com slash product tank. Here's Global Coordinator Mark Abraham to tell you more about it. Product Tank is a global community of meetups in over 155 cities across the world, driven by and for product managers. Whether you have a group discussion or you're listening to speakers, the whole idea is to create a safe environment for product people to come together and to share their learnings and tips. Mm-hmm.